Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Books with Hooks. You have your co-host, Carly Waters and Cece Lira with you today. I'm going to start off with the first query letter. Dear Carly, Thank you to you, Cece and Bianca, for all the ways you've enriched my writing life. I am directing my submission to you because your contribution to an open dialogue about mental health makes me think you will connect with my story. Shout out to Bianca for matching me with my beloved writing group and for your generous advice over drinks in Worcester last November. I am seeking representation for The Wonder Ball, a dual POV, dual timeline novel, complete at 90,000 words. It is comparable to The Family Dysfunction in Little Monsters by Adrian Brodeur, and The Upheaval of Suicide Loss is Like Someday, Maybe by Onyi Nwabinelli, Content Notes, Suicide, Anti-Gay Violence. Friends say Casey Morris is as big-hearted 
as she is hilarious, but all she sees is a middle-aged lesbian who was recently divorced and unemployed. Branded as the family screw-up since growing up in the 80s, she's been trying to beat back substance misuse and unaddressed mental illness since then. Casey's younger sister, Sarah, appears to have it all, but behind a perfect facade, her husband is an alcoholic and she's struggling to parent her highly emotional, explosive son while trying not to ignore her people-pleasing daughter. Casey dies by suicide and Sarah becomes obsessed with finding someone to blame. When an enormous truck deposits the contents of Casey's storage unit into Sarah's garage, she follows the clues about Casey's history, finding old friends and investigating her sister's alma mater, a defunct New Hampshire reform school. Sarah keeps digging, growing farther from her family, career, and sanity. She struggles to believe what her mother and eldest sister Evelyn tell her and confronts them about what really happened to Casey. Sarah is jarred back into the land of the living when her husband crashes a friend's car and nearly dies. She must find a new equilibrium where she doesn't have to choose between her living loved ones and leaving Casey behind. I have shared portions of my manuscript with authors Courtney Mom, Azreen Vanderbilt, Alumi, and Obe Ray Lescure. After I engaged Courtney in 2022, she said, I had fantastic pacing and right away we feel like we are in the capable and trustworthy arms of a natural born storyteller. My work has appeared in publications such as TWLOHA and Commonwealth Magazine, among others. Though it is fiction, the story is based on my experience. My work as an attorney specializing in state intervention child custody cases gives me a unique perspective on mental health, generational trauma, and the endless ways in which family is complicated. I live in Massachusetts, and in my free time, I am wrangling children and a rescue hound named Steve, plotting my next project, a novel set in the insular equestrian world. I have included the first five pages below. May I send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, Abby Saloyas. Thank you, Carly. What was the word count on that? And what did you think of the query letter? All right. This one came in at 412 words. The author summarized that for me, but they said excluding the first paragraph so we can add on to that because uh, we're always going to need a little bit of an introduction paragraph or personalization to the agent. Okay. So... I definitely think it's on the long side. Anytime something is over 400 words, I, I think it's on the long side. So few notes here. So we go through the content notes, which you had suicide, anti-gay violence. You kind of repeat suicide twice because you have the line about the upheaval of suicide loss and the comp and then the next line content notes. And then you say it again. So I really don't think we need that twice. I think in most instances, content notes can go in the synopsis document, not necessarily the query letter, especially because you already mentioned suicide loss. So I think we can get rid of some word count there. I'm definitely feeling a little bit confused. I mean, we have the dual POV, dual timeline novel. I can wrap my head around that, right? But then when I start to look at the actual words on the page, we have Casey and then we have the sister. So are we getting Casey's POV up until Casey dies, essentially? Or, you know, is it third person? Is it first person? Like, I don't know. And I'm not necessarily saying we have to, you have to spell out when things are first person and third person. I usually think that's too much information in a query letter. But this leads me to what I think the buried hook is. And I think the buried hook here is when an enormous truck deposits the contents of Casey 
Casey's storage unit into Sarah's garage. She follows the clues about Casey's history, etc. To me, that's what the book is about, right? It's the sister's, you know, exploration and excavation of her sister's life. So I would be framing everything kind of around that. Firstly, because I think it's super interesting, because what you're leading with in that first paragraph of content summary is, you know, she's big hearted, middle aged lesbian grew up in the 80s, you know, the sister appears to have it all like you're just telling us facts, right? Like We don't know anything about the actual hook of the book. So I'd be really trying to focus all of this on how do these two people connect other than being sisters, because there's a lot of books about family ties, right? What I want to know is what connects these two people at this exact time. And that is when the truck deposits the contents of Casey's storage unit into Sarah's garage, right? That's the moment where the worlds are really colliding in a tactile way. You know what I'm trying to say in terms of, again, family members can be connected, obviously, through family history, but we need a physical thing that's going to kind of bring these bring these people together. So that's what I would really be focusing on trying to keep central when we think about how we're going to summarize this into a pitch, because there's a lot I think can go if we start to just focus on, for the reader's sake, what is this, this unifying event and the repercussions of this unifying event. Thank you, Carly. Give us a summary of what happens in those opening pages. We start with, there's a number one for the chapter, Sarah 2020. And we meet Sarah as she is in the car. She is opening the window of the car as she's going over a bridge, which is what her sister KC used to do. She's thinking about throwing something out the window because, you know, I think she's just feeling all these huge feelings about her sister, thinking about the last time she saw her sister who came from New York to Cape Cod to spend Thanksgiving with them. So we kind of go through a little bit of that interaction when Casey was alive for their family event, kind of interacting with each other on Thanksgiving. And then we move to chapter two, which is when Sarah is in the city, presumably after Casey has died. And we are waiting to interact with the, we think, I'm not sure if it's a friend or a girlfriend, I haven't quite figured that out yet, who we think probably lives with Casey or is close enough to Casey that has the keys to their apartment. But we're kind of about to wait outside of Casey's apartment and Sarah is waiting for the friend. Interesting. And what did you think of the execution? You know, I I really liked the writing. I thought it was, I thought it was really, really strong, you know, for the first line we have. Sarah somehow made it from one end of the Bourne Bridge to the other with everything still inside the Jeep. I think that's a really interesting line because it's like, well, why wouldn't things still be in the Jeep? Why would have things, you know, fallen out of the Jeep? And then she kind of gets into, you know, something a little bit more internal about, you know, she envisions hurling her cell phone or the coffee mug herself out the window. And it says there's a psychological term for these compulsions, which is call of the void. And then she's talking about the void inside herself. And so I thought it was a very kind of, strong literary opening. There's a couple things that were standing out to me in terms of specificity. I think with literary fiction, word choice, word choice, word choice. You know, I'm always going to assume that a literary fiction author is going to be like a poet in terms of like everything they choose from, you know, that exact word to the order of the words in that sentence is going to be super, super intentional. And there's a couple examples where I just don't think we were very specific, which 
made me feel like this wasn't as real as it could be. And one of the big things for me was when we're talking about the places. So she says, not long after Casey moved back to New York, and then the next paragraph, she talks about how Sarah lives in Cape Cod. Like New York is a really big place. Are we talking about New York State? Are we talking about New York City? And even still, if you're familiar with the city, then you would kind of be able to talk about the neighborhoods or the boroughs, you know, like I just felt like just saying the words New York is just kind of meaningless to be honest so I think that was just a huge opportunity for us to get a way more specific we do later on learn that Casey's apartment was in Hell's Kitchen which is super super specific and much more useful and even when they talked about like you know their corner of Cape Cod I'm like Cape Cod is also a big place right there's lots of towns in Cape Cod so I don't know I think there those were a couple examples where setting we just missed a huge opportunity two times in a row to get way more specific about our setting which again I would just feel like it was more real and authentic if I could learn a little bit more about that. Another example, the there, so it's Thanksgiving dinner and Casey is being offered to like carve the bird, like carve the turkey. And the eldest sister says, she rushes over and says, isn't that a Prada sweater in the grease? That won't come out. And they laugh and they say like, of course, Casey's sweater was Prada, whether it was made up of rejects from Evelyn's closet, sample sales or designer consignment, she somehow maintained a stellar wardrobe. So we get the sense where it's like, she doesn't have a lot of money, but it's like some always has really nice clothes but I was a little bit confused by this because if it was Evelyn's sweater and she knew that it was a Prada sweater because she gave it to her she wouldn't say a Prada sweater wouldn't she say the Prada sweater because the sister giving it to her would know it's like that wasn't just you know maybe she has a whole closet of Prada I don't know but normally it's like if you're into designer things it's like you have a Prada sweater and a this sweater and a that sweater so I just thought it should have been the Prada sweater not a Prada sweater and then we follow with this little description of why Evelyn's closet always has nice things in it. I felt like that was super on the nose to be like, talk about the Prada sweater and then talk about her closet. I almost feel like we should just, we should have learned about the fact that she has nicer clothes at the beginning and then it would have made more sense with the Prada sweater at the end. It just, all of that was just too on the nose for literary fiction for me. And the other issue that I had was just around Sarah. So she's clearly one of our main characters and I know nothing about her, right? We're obviously very focused on KC for obvious reasons. But if we're going to spend a lot of time with Sarah uncovering the history of her sister's life, I have to know way more about Sarah. So I just felt like by the time I got to the end of this sample, I just wanted to know more about Sarah. But I really do think the writing is strong. I'm just kind of pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, because that's what we expect of literary fiction. Absolutely. In publishing, expectations are always high. But when it comes to literary fiction, then it's, I guess you put it nicely. It's like a poet. It has to be like poetry. All right, that's it for me. I'm going to hand it over to Cece to read the query letter. Dear Cece, firstly, thank you for taking the time to review this query. I'm writing to submit my work-in-progress literary fiction novel, These Familiar Strangers, expected 70,000 words. For your consideration, since you are, like me, interested in obsessive female relationship and all things dark and twisted. Set over the course of a claustrophobic weekend, these Familiar Strangers uses the language of gothic horror to explore the legacy of trauma in the same vein as Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dreamhouse and Maggie Nelson's Our Wives Under the Sea. Told from a first-person perspective, slipping into third and back again to first, the form itself plays a part in exploring the dissociative horrors of being a teenage girl. 20-something Maggie sets off with her boyfriend to spend a weekend in the country with his friends from boarding school. 
Already feeling out of place, surrounded by extreme privilege, Maggie is horrified to meet the last house guest, her childhood best friend Eve. Maggie and Eve haven't spoken in over a decade after a dramatic end to their brief, intense friendship. When Eve pretends they don't know each other, Maggie is sent spiraling, trying to unpick their shared past of girlhood cruelties and stolen kisses, quickly realizing she can no longer remember the specifics of their falling out. At the same time, the group begins playing a series of children's games that grow in a twisted intensity And just as Maggie believes she has solved the Eve question, she overhears a conversation about a dead body that leads her to believe she's trapped in the house with a murderer. As Maggie searches for the truth of the events she's uncovering, and her memories of the girl's youth begin to walk the halls of the great house, she is said to discover that the only ghosts are the ones you bring with you. I am a writer and producer currently heading up the content team at Redacted telling stories about art and culture for museums around the world. My short stories have been published in online journals, including The Short Story and Crow and Cross Keys. My work has also been performed live by Liars League. These familiar strangers would be my debut novel. I have attached the first five pages, full manuscript expected to come September if the revisions ever finish. Do let me know if you'd like to review the full. Best, Molly. Thank you so much, Cece. We're going to ask you now for the word count and what you thought about those words in the query letter. This one came in at 409 words. At first, when I started reading this query letter, I was like, no, you don't submit works in progress to agents. What are you talking about? And then I realized, obviously, this is just for the podcast, right? Like we are an educational resource. We have said this before. We're always happy to review works in progress if that is the writer's preference. So again, if you were sending this query to an agent, never call it a work in progress because it's not supposed to be, but because you're sending this to us so that we can give you feedback, then it's totally okay. Before we talk about the plot paragraphs, I want to talk about the structure. The writer is very honest in telling us that it's told from a first-person perspective, then slips back to third, then back to first again. I am going to be honest as well and say this is going to be a challenge. I'm sure that you have thought about this with intentionality, right? Like you're not just whimsically deciding to go to one type of narration versus another. But I worry. I worry that it's really risky. It can be very jarring to switch points of view like that for the reader. It takes a very sophisticated author to be able to pull it off. And and yeah, and it's a challenge. So I don't know that I would write this in the query letter. I'm afraid that agents are going to be like, ah, this is too experimental. I'm not even going to read it. I don't know. Something to, to think about. I think it's a little risky. When it comes to the plot paragraph, I loved the setup. Like the whole, she's going to spend a weekend with her boyfriend's friends from boarding school and then she finds out there's someone from her past there. That is genius. That is exactly the kind of book I like to read. Yes, please, to all that, to the drama, like just excellent, right? Like I was very excited about this. What I didn't love is the fact that so much of this is relying on her memory. So we get, she can no longer remember the specifics of their falling out. This is, again, still in the beginning of the book, right? Because she encounters this person from her past and she's like, wait, why did we not talk anymore? I don't remember. And I don't know, lost memory stories to me always feel like a cop-out. I'm always happy to be proven wrong, but I would prefer the Eve question to be something more concrete, 
meatier, something I could sink my teeth into, not something that's, you know, a little airy, a little untethered. There are, of course, books that do this really well. Girl on the Train is a story that could not exist were it not for her lack of memory. And it was a huge, huge bestseller. So if this is your intention, if this is your jam, do it. I have to be honest about my own bias. I really, really struggle with stories where it's all writing on the memories coming back because it feels like the author, again, I'm, I'm going to be mean here. I'm going to sound like a jerk, people, just so you guys know. It feels like the writer is telling themselves, I'm not going to come up with a plot. I'm, you know, the the plot, all the things that are writing on the will they or won't they, the major dramatic question, I'm going to make it all about her memory. And as the author, you get, you decide when her memory comes back. So it's, it's something that I really, really struggle with for, this is important, I guess, that people know if they're going to query me, they should know this. I also think the major dramatic question, um, like the Eve question is a little untethered right now. Like she is set to discover that the only ghosts are the ones you bring with you. I would, again, would prefer something meaty or something I can seek my teeth into. So I would, I would, I don't know, either this is really not for me or it's something that the writer might want to reconsider. It's just one of those situations where it could be taste or it could be good advice depending on, on the person's vision for the work, for the work. Yeah. Overall, I, again, really like the setup. So I was excited to read the pages. All right. Thank you so much, Cece. So the protagonist is in school sitting, right? And she's thinking about Eve all the time, thinking about all the things she wants to say to Eve, but she can't. And eventually Eve goes missing and there's all sorts of rumors in the school about what happened to Eve. But then one day someone just sees her wearing a different school's uniform, going to a different school. And so the mystery solved. And she thinks to herself, the protagonist, about how she really wants to to be able to speak to Eve again. And then we have chapter one. Chapter one is the protagonist already as an adult in the car with her boyfriend. They're heading over to this estate where she is going to meet his boarding school friends. And she's asking him, what are you like around them? You know, do you get pulled back into the the dynamics of being a teenage boy? And he's just saying, you know, no, not really. He's not really telling her much. We get information on how they met. And she asks him, you know, I want them to like me. And he, she asks him, are you nervous? And then he says, there's nothing to be nervous about. And she wonders, you know, what it must be like to be that confident, to be that kind of person. And they see an accident and she says, look at that. And he's like, why would you make me look at that? And she's like, well, just impulse, I guess. And he's like, I wish I hadn't seen it. Thank you, Cece. Now tell us what you thought of those pages. Okay. I want to start by saying that the voice in the prologue is spectacular like actually spectacular. So voicey, so good. I I had to pause at one moment to be like, oh my gosh, like this is so curiosity inducing about character. Like I really, really love this prologue. I almost never say this about prologues. And so please know that this is very rare. It's It's making me curious about their relationship. It's making me curious about the protagonist as a human. It's it's doing its job in terms of voiciness and character. If you want to make this even more commercial, or I guess more commercial, I should say, I'd up the plot points in the paragraph. Right now, I'm like I said, I'm curious about the protagonist, but I'm not curious about anything plot related. I'm not thinking to myself, did she kill so-and-so? Or who was the person who left the note behind that changed everything? You know, I'm not thinking about a specific plot point. I am thinking about human interest. And plot is what makes a book more commercial. So if you want to look at prologues that only do character, an example would be Jeanette Wall's Hang the Moon, 
That's all character. It doesn't matter. It's amazing. I loved it. One of my favorite books. And if you want to look at a prologue that does plot and character, look at the ballerinas because from the very first line, we are wondering a plot point. We are wondering who did she kill? So it's up to you. I always think that making something a little bit more commercial, infusing that element is a plus if you can do it organically and if it fits your story. Okay, so about the first chapter, I have a suggestion. I would write this in the present tense. There's something about the voice that I feel would make it stronger. I I even tried doing it a little, like changing it myself and then rereading it. And it, to me, it reads so much better. So that's that's something I would do. I would not have the information, the little flashback we had about how they met. How she met her boyfriend is completely irrelevant at this point. It doesn't belong in the first five pages at all, unless there are curiosity seeds. And I didn't really see any. Curiosity seeds are for the reader. They're not something that, they're not a clue. Like they're not something that can be hidden. So I would just remove that section. I would also work on the dialogue between the characters. So the dialogue, the words that they are saying are strong, but there's interiority missing as she says things. When he says, for example, he's not nervous, is she thinking to herself, oh, how typical, he's never nervous? Or is she thinking he's bluffing? He just, you know, that's his fragile male eagle or whatever. When he tells her, of course they'll like you, you're my girlfriend, wouldn't this make her wonder if they liked his previous girlfriends? What does she think about his previous girlfriends? So again, I think that there's just so many opportunities to make this juicier from a dialogue perspective. One thing I highly encourage writers to do is when you're writing dialogue, especially if you're someone like this writer who is good at writing dialogue, remember that interiority needs to add depth, detail, and deception. Preferably all three, but at least two out of three. And deception doesn't have to be anything bombastic. It can be something small. So a small thing that you're holding back. I also think that there's there's a line that says, I couldn't honestly say if I even really liked him, let alone wanted to date him. This is about the protagonist and the boyfriend. And she still sort of feels that way about him now. They've been dating for months now. And she, you know, doesn't even feel like she likes him. And I don't love this. I don't love this unless she knows why she's with him in a very concrete way. For example, the allure of money. You know, if that is her jam, that's cool. That would make it interesting. Again, matter of taste. This is a CC thing, but I don't like women who don't know their mind. It reads as wishy-washy. And if they don't care, like if they barely know if they care, I think that seeps into the reader's unconscious brain and the reader goes, and why should I care? So again, not something that is necessarily for you, like it might not be a note that resonates with you depending on how you're, on your vision for this, but you just have such a great opportunity here. Like your setup is so juicy. Your setup is exactly the kind of book I want to read. Like it made me so excited. And the prologue, the voice was just like, wow, you nailed that. So for chapter one, I don't know, maybe start in a different place or maybe just up the juiciness. There's, there's work here to be done. And you know this because you know it's a work in progress. So again, like I wish I could talk to the author and ask her, hey, these, these elements of the plot, the fact that she doesn't really remember things, the fact that it's relying on her not remembering things, the fact that she doesn't really know how she feels about this guy or why she's with him, are these essential? Because in my view, and I don't mean to overstep, they are getting in the way of a fantastic story, right? Like you have great writing, you have great story setup, you have all the juiciness. And yeah, I, I hope I'm not overstepping by saying this, but I, I would tweak these elements because I'm just really excited about everything else. And thank you for sharing.
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest holds a bachelor's degree from Western Connecticut State University and a master's degree from NYU. His debut novel, Burn It All Down, was published in 2021 and praised as unforgettable by James Patterson. He lives in upstate New York with his partner Greg and his swishy bulldog Rocco. The Gay Best Friend is his second novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Nicholas Didomizio. Nicholas, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity, by the way, because I was like a religious listener of the shit no one tells you about writing. I still am, but there was one period where I was like going through your entire backlist of episodes, just like trying to ingest the, um, yeah, because you know, even though I had an agent at the time, it was still really helpful, like in trying to figure out how am I going to pitch my story to my agent so that she can pitch it to editors and stuff. So it's like amazing stuff that you guys share on here. <laughs> oh, well, that's a huge, huge compliment. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And yeah, you know, for our listeners, there's, there's things that I still learn about writing and publishing every single day. I don't think we ever get to the point where we know everything, where we stop learning. In fact, what we're going to be discussing today is stuff about writing that I know absolutely nothing about. And that is adapting a book into a screenplay. And I think it's it's on the bucket list of every single author that one of their books gets optioned, that they get to work on the screenplay, that they get to see it on the big screen. And, you know, Nicholas has gone through this process now with two different books, and he's going to help demystify a lot of it for us. Before we get into that, Nicholas, how the hell did you get that James Patterson blurb? <laughs> you know, it was a crazy thing with my debut it almost didn't get acquired when my agent was pitching it and it got pretty far into the acquisitions at little brown but there was still a lot of indecision by the acquisitions board and people didn't know what category it should be like was it a comedy was it a thriller was it adult was it ya because the protagonists are 18 and 34 anyways at some point my editor there had James Patterson read it and he really liked it. So he agreed to give the blurb before they even acquired it. And that was kind of what pushed it over into being acquired instead of rejected. So I kind of owe that one to him. Yeah, it was crazy when she told me. There's so much to unpack there. So one, yay, James Patterson, excellent literary citizenship. Two, you know, many of our listeners think it's a good thing to straddle so many different genres because they're under the impression that that means, okay, cool, I have the widest possible audience. You know, I have thriller readers, I have romance readers, I have coming of age readers. But what you've just said is so true because marketing and PR people want to know where the hell in the bookstore to put this book. They want to know what shelf to put it on. And, you know, if the book straddles too many genres, it can make that difficult. Yeah, there were there were no comps. <laughs> and the editor was being very transparent with my agent saying like, we do not have a single comp that we can like, plug into the PL to see like, oh, this, this will find an audience. But you know, once they like once James said, put my name on the cover, see if that helps sell copies that kind of convinced them. But interestingly enough, it really didn't help sell that many copies in the end. And the book kind of struggled to find an audience for all the reasons they were concerned about, because it really, it was published as like an adult hardcover fiction, but people didn't really know, like, was it literary? Was it commercial? Was it like, there was still so much confusion as to who the exact reader was going to be, but it was a learning process. And I, I love the book and I, I don't have any regrets, but. Yeah. And you know what? This speaks to what I've always thought, which I think is blurbs are bullshit. You know, as authors, yes. we spend so much of our time helping other authors, giving them blurbs, reading their work in between all the other stuff. I mean, I got a blurb from Anne Patchett that said, Bianca Murray is a genius. This is the kind of blurb I want to like tattoo across my forehead. And yeah. that 
you know, it's not like that helped books fly off the shelves. So I don't know how much readers are honestly swayed by blobs, but I guess that's a whole other a whole other thing. But it seems like now you've really found your groove with the gay best friend. Was that easier to market? Was that easier for them to position? Was it rom com? Was it romance? Let's let's chat a bit about that process. Yeah. So, you know, it was a struggle getting a deal for the gay best friend because the sales of Burn, you know, weren't great. But thankfully, I my editor had such a vision for it. And she, like, you know, saw the Beach Read crowd, she saw the rom-com readers, she kind of saw a lot of crossover with, you know, the upmarket and the romance world, kind of like an, an Emily Henry target audience, but gay. And yeah, so that vision was like there right from the first meeting that we had. And it was, I noticed, it, it's been much easier to help promote this book because there is such an established readership of people who, you know, go to the beach and take a book with them and people who love to ship, you know, a romance. And yeah, so there's there's something to be said about that entire marketing strategy behind any book. So I've I've learned a lot about that in my first two. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's so weird how you can see just from the covers. So the gay best friend cover, you just look at that illustrated sort of you know, cover and you go a beach read, uh, sort of rom com Whereas, yeah, if you look at your first book, burn it all down, even looking at that cover doesn't really clarify you what, what the book is about. And for our listeners, this is why we've often said, you know, to be intentional with the kind of book you debut with, because you're so excited to get published and you're like, I just want people to read my book. But if you don't have good sales with your debut novel, it makes it that much harder to sell your second book. That's why there are so many debut authors who never came out with a sophomore novel because publishers want the book to go out there, be a New York Times bestseller, and then kind of set up your career. So it does make it harder for you. And this is someone who speaks from experience. My first book sales were, okay, second book, completely tanked. And that made it really, really hard for me to sell a third book, which is why I had to reinvent myself in a whole new genre, etc, etc. So these are things for you guys to keep in mind down the line. Right now, Nick, how did you make the decision to self adapt the gay best friend rather than let the production company hire an outside writer, which is what you did when your first book was optioned? Take us through that thinking and that process. Absolutely. So yeah, my first book, the, the good thing to come from that was was that there was a lot of interest in Hollywood. And I, I optioned it with like an amazing production company, but they had a very particular vision of changes to the story. And they had a, a very strong, like creative idea of what the movie was going to look like which keeping like the story of the book, but definitely different than what I wrote. And they had a writer in mind to do it, a screenwriter to, to do the adaptation. And I, I briefly was like, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind writing my own screenplay, but they just had that vision. And also I had no experience at all. So I, I don't blame them for kind of saying, you know, if we option it, we want to hire this writer. So, so yeah, that was the experience with the first book. But when the second one, The Gay Best Friend, was being sent around by my film agent, there wasn't as much interest across Hollywood. There, like, we didn't have any like firm offers come in right away, but we did have interest from a production company that said basically like we love this and we want to work with you to package it and to find you know a director and talent to attach and then 
shop it to buyers together, which I guess is called a shopping agreement. It's kind of like a more of a handshake deal where you just work with the producer, you know, no money is exchanged until there's a buyer. And so I, I had a Zoom with them and I really liked their ideas and I liked their vision. And and so I asked them if if they would consider letting me take a stab at, at writing a screenplay, you know, and I was very upfront that I didn't know how to do it, but I was very interested in doing it. And they were really receptive to it. And they thought it would strengthen the vision that they had, and it would strengthen our chances when, you know, we did go out to directors and to talent, because there would already be a script for people who had never read the book. Because when you go to buyers with just like a literary to film adaptation, they're reading the book, and then they have to think about like, oh, how do we turn this into a script? So basically, it was appealing to them because it cut out that step. So so yeah, from there I was off and running and it was learn as you go type thing. And they were really, really helpful in, in giving feedback and kind of giving me a crash course in, in how, to, how to do it. Yeah, I can only imagine what a steep learning curve it is because they're totally different art forms. We think, oh, writing's writing. But the thing that we love about novels is the interiority, that we are in a character's mind all the time. We have access to their thoughts. We have access to their emotions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and there's ways of doing that with film, obviously, but it's not that we are completely immersed within that character. We suddenly become outside of that character and we're viewing them and everybody else from the outside as opposed to from the inside. And for our listeners, Nick was kind enough to let me see the first few pages of the screenplay. And I read the first few chapters of the book as well. And, you know, it reminded me why I love reading. It was so hilarious. There are these like lines. So Nick writes about that they at this cocktail lounge in Tribeca. And it's he says it's called Cocktailia. And the character muses how strange it is that it's somehow not the name of a gay porn sci-fi spoof, which was hilarious. That had me chuckling away. And of course, that's not the kind of thing you can just easily work into the dialogue in terms of the screenplay unless, you know, the character is saying something like that. But it made me realize so much of the limitations. So, Nick, can you tell us, like, what you learned from the screenwriting process, from from adapting this? What if that can be applied to novels and what novelist skills do you have that were you able to apply to the screenplay? Yeah, so many on both sides. But it's funny you talk about the interiority thing. Because yeah, in my in my fiction, I tend to be very voice driven. And you know, narrators who are always saying one thing and like thinking another and, you know, making those silly little quips. And so that was the biggest adjustment at first with with the screenplay. And it was funny because the first draft was basically like beat for beat what was in the book. (laughs) And it was too long and i had a i tried to like retain dominic the narrator i tried to like retain his inner voice by by having him do voiceover like throughout the movie which works in certain movies like i love it in clueless and you know other movies do that really well but the way i was doing it was just like let me take as much from the book and throw it into a script and like see if they let me get away with it and they were immediately like okay we need to step way back and you know change a lot about this because it's you can't just like change the format of your book (laughs) and call it a day and and can I ask because I think I've heard that like film scripts need to be like something like 80 pages long is that right so yeah pretty much between 80 and 120 
you know, if it's a comedy, a lighter movie, you you want to be closer to like the ninety to a hundred range. And if it's like a really how the hell drama, do you take eighty thousand words of a novel and put that onto that? It's like breaking my brain. So carry out, carry out. Right. And there's so much white space on a script page. It's not even like a whole page. <laughs> you know, the text is big and the, yeah, so it, it was a lot. So yeah, the first thing I kind of learned is that, you know, like with writing a novel, the biggest advice everyone gives is, you know, show, don't tell. But writing a screenplay is, it's show, don't tell on steroids. Like you really cannot tell the audience anything. Everything has to be, like the only thing you can put into a script page is something that can be visually conveyed on the screen. So there's no way to tell the viewer what a character is feeling, what they're thinking. It all has to be conveyed via the action and the dialogue. So in doing that, in applying that alone, I was like, okay, I need to get rid of this voiceover. It's way too on the nose. When you like watch a film, no one ever, like people still say one thing and mean another, but the audience has to just infer <laughs> what they mean instead of kind of hearing the narrator, you know, go off on their own little internal tangent. So yeah, and so some of Dom's like internal thoughts, I was able to just condense into like a beat of action, like instead of him, you know, going on like an anxiety spiral about being in the kitchen with this guy that he likes, it was more like he pretends to be looking for his phone, and he can't find it. And he's, you know, being a klutz type of a thing. Or if there really was a good line in his like internal interiority, I've, you know, some of those were able to translate to dialogue and it made for some really funny exchanges with the other characters. So yeah, there were, there are two totally different parts of your brain, but what they have in common, I think, is that like, you do want a novel, like you want the reader to see it like a movie in their head. So in that way, like writing a novel, you're trying to think cinematically. And when you write a screenplay, you do want it to be an entertaining read because before it ever gets made into a movie, it's being read by producers, directors, actors, and they can like flip open the script and they feel like they're having fun just like reading a story. It's going to help the case for the movie so much. So <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. It, it, it is. And okay, so I, I want to chat about like which scenes you kept, which scenes you realized had to come out, et cetera, et cetera. But besides all of that, you know, when you say, okay, I'm going to try and do this, how do you take a crash course in learning how to write a screenplay? Like what resources do you turn to? Did you go on courses to do this? I mean, I would get screenplay for dummies. <laughs> that would be my my resource because I'm a real dummy. So so how did you tackle that? Yeah, that's that was one of the biggest challenges because I, I've always been a movie lover and I in the back of my head I would always think like oh, if I had the chance to write a screenplay one day, I'm sure I could do it. Not like not knowing anything about the formatting or the all of the rules and stuff. So when they actually said yes to allowing me to do it, I really did have to like be like, oh shit, I actually have to do this now. So the first thing I did was I read a number of screenplays of like my favorite movies. So I read Thelma and Louise, which is an amazing script by Callie Corey. And that's a script like that reads just like an entertaining read. You know, like if, if you've never seen the movie, you could read that script and you would be riveted. Same thing with Scream, one of my favorite horror films. Obviously, Kevin Williamson is a genius. I read Bridesmaids because my book like has a lot in common. Another really fun script. I read Moonstruck. 
and I read Clueless. So those were like my scripts where just to like see how other screenwriters did it and how they compared to the movies. And, and since I was already so familiar with those movies, I could see like what was in the, I knew the scene so intimately. So seeing how they were like rendered on the page was really helpful. And then I did get like a screenwriting for dummies book. <laughs> it was called the screenwriter's Bible and it kind of laid out step by step, like for the beginner. So that was really helpful. And even after all of that, you know, it still took like six rounds of revision with the production company to to get it to a place where, where we felt like it was competitive. So yeah, it was, I feel really, you know, who knows if the movie will ever get made, but I feel at the very least grateful that like my first screenwriting experience was done with the help of industry professionals <laughs> and and that I was able to to get to the finish line and I learned so much. Yeah, I mean talk about challenging yourself and learning all new skill sets. You know, I thought I learned a lot during COVID in terms of I mean learning how to run a podcast, how to do editing of a podcast and sound engineering and using Canva and learning how to make videos and reels and stuff. And it is always wonderful to learn these different skill sets and you've learned you've acquired an entirely entirely new one. For our listeners who don't know where they could find those examples of their favorite scripts. Where is a resource where they go? Obviously, you pay for them. Is there like a central database that has all of these scripts? How does that work? So Thelma and Louise and Moonstruck were actually published like in print. So those were really cool because you act, they like when you buy like a, a published screenplay, you know, you're seeing like what the screenwriter actually wrote when you go online. So like for Scream, Bridesmaids, Clueless, other and I read some others too. For those, I kind of just went into Google and was able to pull them up for free through like various like screenwriting websites. I couldn't tell you the names of the websites, but pretty much I think if you Google any movie, you could find the shooting script, which isn't necessarily the script that was like as written by the screenwriter. The shooting script is going to be something very very close to what ended up in the actual movie, but still very helpful just to learn the format and, you know, to to see how economical they are with words and sentences. Yeah, that's awesome. So for our listeners, not even things that you have to pay for. So, you know, and, and we always say if cost is barrier to entry, try and get library books, you know, find as, as many great resources as you possibly can. Just don't go for pirated copies of anything because this is helping teach AI how to replace us, data scraping, so avoid that. But there are tons of free resources out there available for you. Okay, so in terms of how you decided which scenes to keep, which scenes to scrap, where you had to write all new scenes, do you stand there and storyboard the thing? Did you go, these are the scenes that were all in the book and put up your post-it notes and then try and figure it out from there? Or was the process different? It wasn't quite, I think a lot of screenwriters do the storyboard thing and the the beating it out and stuff. For me, I started with an outline with all like scene headings, like you would see in a script, but didn't actually write out the scenes. And that initial outline was, like I said earlier, very much like every scene that was in the book. <laughs> And, you know, wasn't very creative in terms of adjusting it for, for the new medium. But the producers that I worked with, they were really instrumental in like jumping on Zoom calls with me. And they knew the book really well because they'd read it a lot. 
so we kind of went back and forth and saying like, what's the A story? What's the B story? And and what's in the book that has nothing to do with those stories that we want to highlight in in the movie? So just by asking that question, there were a number of scenes, some of which that I love that just didn't need to be on camera. There were, you know, there was there were a couple characters that didn't need to be in the movie at all. And, but there was one character who wasn't in the book that much, who we decided should be in the movie more. So stuff like that. And then also like the side characters, like because the book is told exclusively from Dominic's point of view, you're only ever in the room with him. And for the movie, it felt like we needed more than just him for certain, just to like streamline the telling of the story because the whole like plot of the story is that he's the gay best friend of his best bud from childhood. When he came out of the closet in college, they kind of drifted apart. They got back together in law school when his friend was dating this girl, Kate. Now it's years later and Kate and Patrick, the best friend are getting married and Dom is the best man. And he's ends up going to the bachelor party where he accumulates a bunch of secrets that could destroy the marriage. And then he goes to Kate's bachelorette party as kind of like the token gay guy. And the, the secrets keep piling up. So there's this other couple who's really at the center of the drama. And when, when we were talking about it, like we, it's very much Dominic's story and it's still like his movie, you know, it's called the gay best friend. So it's about him, but there were moments where it was like, we might want to see Patrick and Kate outside of, you know, Dominic, just so that the viewer of the movie can kind of feel like they know something he doesn't. And, you know, just to kind of visually show some of the stuff that in the book is only talked about and alluded to and like that Kate and Patrick are telling Dominic themselves. For a movie, sometimes it's more interesting rather than having a character say something to just like cut to the actual scene of the thing happening. And you can also do that you know, much more quickly than you could having like a whole drawn out conversation. So stuff like that. And then one thing that we changed that I wish I had thought of, like when I was writing the book. So that's the other thing about self-adapting. Sometimes you'll think of something for the movie that's like, ooh, this would have been great <laughs> if I had thought of it like two years ago when I was drafting the book. The entire Bachelorette party sequence was completely, completely revised to being a, a totally different thing that, than it was in the book. And it's just like, when I think about the movie version, it's just so, it's so funny. I mean, the, the one in the book is pretty extreme too, but <laughs> we really like ramped it up for the movie. And the, the thing that the producers kept telling me was like, think about what you would want to see in the trailer and do that for like all of the big scenes, like the bachelor party, the bachelorette and the, you know, the wedding. And that really helped me. And, and that's something that I'm going to take with me. Like the next time I write a book is <laughs> like, what do you want to see in the trailer and like go from there? Yeah, that's really, really good. What do you, you know, what do you want to see in the trailer? Just for our listeners, you know, the opening chapter of the gay best friend has Kate and Dom at this cocktail lounge in Tribeca. And they're talking about the fact that Dom's engagement has just been called off and they're having to cancel all the wedding arrangements. And there's a hilarious conversation about STDs, which had me killing myself laughing, but it's not that kind of STD. It's the save the dates that were sent out that now have to be unsent out, etc. And, you know, you get a lot of context as to what's happening in each of their lives through their dialogue. 
But in the first few pages of the screenplay, we actually start in Dom's apartment with him by himself doing the unsaved the dates by himself. Then we have him in a sports bar with Patrick. So we get to see his and Patrick's dynamic before we actually get to see him with Kate. That only ends up being like the fourth scene in the screenplay. So it's really interesting to see how these things shift around as you kind of get a 360 degree view of these characters. And remember that when you're writing, POV matters. If you're writing a first-person point of view, the only thing you can tell the reader is everything that that character was there for, everything that they are privy to, that they have been told. You cannot tell the reader things that that character doesn't know somehow or the other, either through eavesdropping or being told a secret or reading a letter, etc. Whereas like you know, Nick said in the movie, you can show those characters without Dom being there because the POV isn't quite the same. We're now at the end of our time, Nick. I don't know how that happened. It has been such, such an incredible conversation. And for our listeners, we are going to be announcing the details of our deep dive series that's coming up from January to March. We're going to be announcing those soon. And we're super, super excited to announce that Nick is going to be one of our presenters at that series. As someone who writes romance, coming of age, as someone who straddles genres, who does rom-coms as well, and screenwriting, he's going to be an amazing person to listen to. And remember, there's always a half an hour Q&A afterwards, so you get to pick his brain then. Nick, we're really looking forward to seeing you for that. I am so excited. And thank you so much again for for the invitation. And it's really uh, like amazing to be on the other side of the podcast, <laughs> you know, for this episode. It was so fun. I can't believe how fast it went. It did. It went ridiculously fast, but we got in a lot. And, you know, thank you for being such an excellent literary citizen and for sharing all your vast experience with us. For our listeners, we're going to link to the Gay Best Friend on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it through there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast at the same time. Really get it. It is hilarious. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all-about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.